Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D., and today I'll be covering the case of John and Maria Granite in Palos Park, Illinois. Let's get right to it. In 2011, Maria and John Granite Sr. were enjoying the American dream. They had a beautiful brick home on 81st Court in Palos Park, which they shared with their teenage son, who was his father's namesake, John Jr. Maria and John Sr. had one hell of a love story. They met when they were only teenagers and both living in Poland. And from the moment they met, they instantly fell in love. According to the patch, John came to the United States in the mid-1980s, and eventually Maria did too, six years later in 1986. The time the couple spent apart only strengthened their relationship, and a year after Maria finally made it over to the States, she and John Sr. got married in 1987. John Sr. worked hard to provide for his new family. He held two jobs, one at a steel factory during the day, and in the evenings he did janitorial work at nearby schools. Maria would come along at night to help her husband clean up at the school. Eventually, John Sr. opened a construction business where he worked alongside his two brothers, one an electrician and the other a plumber, and together they built and remodeled homes. In 1994, the Granites went from a party of two to a party of three when John Jr. was born. With a brand new baby boy, John Sr. decided it was time to start building a home of his own. And soon after John Jr.'s birth, he began building that dream home in Palos Park. Eventually, the couple expanded their business and bought and managed four apartment buildings as well as other homes. And as always, John Sr. worked hard to provide for his family. As John Jr. got older, his father tried to instill the work ethic that had made him so successful in his son. He paid him to work at the apartment buildings where he would clean, vacuum the hallways, mow the lawns, and trim the bushes. As the years went by, nearly all of John Sr. and Maria's siblings emigrated from Poland and lived nearby. The family was extremely tight-knit, and they spent as much time together as they could. Fast forward to 2011. John Granite Sr. was now 44, his wife Maria was 41, and they had been married for 24 years and built a very successful business. John Jr. was 17 and a senior at Stagg High School. He made good grades and never seemed to get into too much trouble. No family is perfect, but from the outside looking in, it seemed the Granites were doing pretty good for themselves. But on Sunday, September 11, 2011, at approximately 7.11 a.m., everything changed. John Granite Jr. called 911 to report something horrific. Sunday, 07 11. 911, where's your emergency? Hello. Hi. I went down the block. I ran out of my house. Okay. Because I woke up and it was like everything was flipped over. 
and I went to go wake up my parents in church, and they were dead. They were drowning in their own blood. They were drowning in their own blood. Where? Where at? 127-62-A First Court. Wait, I can't hear you. Where? 127-62-A First Court. What town are you in? Bells Park. Are you unincorporated over there? Yes. Hang on one second for me. Okay, and what happened? And you woke up and what happened? I went to go wake up my parents. Okay. Everything was messed up in like the house. It was like, like we got robbed and then I went to go open the door. My dad's laying there in his own blood. Okay, what's your name? My name is John. John, what's your last name, John? Granite. Spell it. G-R-A-N-A-T. G-R-A-N-A-T. And do you live there? Yeah. And you just came home now? No, I was sleeping in the basement. Oh. I came up. Hello? Hello? Okay. Hey, Southwest Central, are you still on with me? Yeah. Okay, are you guys sending an ambulance? Um, yeah, we got him on the way, 127-62-81st-court. Okay. I'm at the end of block. I don't know if anyone's still there. Okay. Are you sure it's 127-62? Yes, 81st-court. Yeah, we'll have them staged. Okay. Hang on one second for me. Okay. And you said that your house is ransacked? Oh, yeah. Okay. Hang on one second for me, okay? I'm going to get the police headed over that way. All right. All right, where are you going to be standing by? I'm at the end of the block. Here at the end of the block? 125 first Court. Okay. Hang on a second. John is standing by... Okay, give me again. You're standing by where? 127th? Yes, Court. 81st Court. Okay, right on the corner? Yes. And both... Okay, didn't you saw your dad in there? He's like laying on the ground and it's like blood everywhere. I don't know what happened. Okay. Okay, but you don't know. How about your mom? Did you see your mom? I don't know. I think she's laying there, too. Okay, hang on one second for me, John. How old are you? I'm Okay, is anybody else in the house, or just you three live there? What? Okay. Okay, um... But you're not sure if anyone else is in the house, right? Okay. I'm not sure. Okay. Okay. Hang on one second for me, okay, John? Right. I'm just going to keep you on the phone until they all get there, okay? All right. Okay. Did you hear any noise? I mean, you heard... I'm like a heavy sleeper, so I don't even hear anything. Like, the TV is not like... I sleep in the basement usually. Okay. I get just... Should I start walking towards the house, or...? No, you know, just stay there on the corner for me if you can. All right. County yeah. there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. you want us to get the park started, Payless Park started over? Yeah. Could you please? It shouldn't take us too long to get there. We're on the way right now. All right. Okay. Yeah. Payless, I don't know if you have another car maybe that you could send for us too. Okay. Hang on one second for me, John, okay? What are you wearing so my officer can see I'm you? I'm like a brown black jeans. Great okay. Testament. All right. I'm so sorry. Black jeans and I missed what kind of shirt? Brown vest. Brown vest? Yeah, sleeveless vest. Sleeveless vest, okay. What part of the house is your dad in? They're in their room. I'm sorry, I missed that. Where? They're in their room. They're in their bedroom? Yes. Okay. And you don't think that anyone else is in the house? You didn't see anything on your way out? You didn't? I don't know. I just ran you out. You just ran out. Okay. Okay, hang on one second for me, okay? What's your uh, dad's name? 
His name is John also? Yes. All right. And the last name is G-R-A-N-E-T? G-R-A-N-A-T. E-T. Okay. Yeah. Do you know what his date of birth is by chance, John? No, I don't know. No? Okay. How old is he around? Do you know? In his 40s? Are you okay? Hello? I don't know. I walked up there and they're just, uh, I see my dad laying dead on the ground. Who, who is there with you? Uh, fire protection. Okay, the fire department's there with you right now? He's in his room. Is the fire department's there right now with you? Yeah. Okay. Are they going in the house? Well, we're at the corner right now. Okay, they're on the, okay, they're standing on the corner with you? Yeah. Okay. Should I hop in? Hang on one second for me, okay? All right. I have three units headed over that way. So you didn't hear any noise from your mom or dad? I mean, when you went into their no. bedroom, nothing? I'm like a heavy sleeper. I just, I think I sleep until it's too hot. I sleep. It sounded like sleeping upstairs because it always gets hot. Okay. So I just stay there. Okay, so is the fire department going in the house right now, John, or they're oh, just, they're, they're with you right now? Okay. All right. All right. They're almost there, okay? Just let me know when you see them pull up, okay? All right. They're staying with him. Yeah. Huh? Right? The fire department is staying with you, right? Yes. Okay. All right. All right. Do you see my officers pulling up right now? I don't see anything yet. Not yet? And you're right on the corner of 127th and 81st, right? Yes. All right. Okay, one of our officers, I guess, is going to go straight to the house, I'm being told. Okay, John? All right. Okay, and you said that your house was ransacked? Yeah. And things are flipped over and turned over. Do you have any other brothers and sisters? No. Just you three? Last year. You got robbed last year? Yeah. He's going down. Okay. Do you see my officers at all? It's the one with the white truck. Yeah, they got Tony and Charles Park behind us. Okay. All right. I'm going to hang up with you then. Okay, John? All right. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. It seemed John Jr. had narrowly escaped with his life. He told the dispatcher that he had been asleep in the basement before he went to go wake up his parents for church. And that's when he found them, quote, drowning in their own blood. He didn't know if anyone was still in the house, so he had ran down the street to the corner of the block. He went on to tell the dispatcher that the house had been robbed before. As he was speaking to the operator, he sounded pretty calm for someone who had just found his parents covered in blood and didn't know if the attacker was still in the area. But I suppose everyone reacts differently to stress and fear. Officers arrived moments later and found John and Maria Granite deceased in their bedroom. The crime scene was absolutely brutal. There was blood covering the bedroom. Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart later recalled to NBC News that it was like entering a different world. The beautiful brick home was neat and tidy, but the bedroom told a story of a hellish nightmare. According to court documents, Maria Granite was found covered in blood, deceased in her bed. 
She had been beaten so severely in the head that the medical examiner would later tell prosecutors that her skull broke apart like an eggshell in his hands as he conducted Maria's postmortem exam. In addition to being beaten, Maria had been stabbed over 20 times in the stomach, lip, and hand. John Granite Sr. had been found on the floor of the bedroom. It appeared he had tried to fight off the attacker but had been overpowered. He too had been beaten severely, to the point that his face was unrecognizable. He suffered countless injuries, including a fractured jaw and lacerations on his skull and liver. The granites had been beaten with such force that a significant amount of blood splattered onto the ceiling and walls of the bedroom. The granite's son, John Jr., was the only surviving witness, so of course, police wanted to speak with him. The responding officers noted that for everything he had just seen and the fact that he had seemingly narrowly escaped the brutal fate of his parents, John Jr. seemed pretty chill about the whole thing. From the moment they set foot on the scene, they noted that something was off. As they went through the house, they noticed that though it appeared to have been ransacked, there were no signs of forced entry, no broken windows, and all the doors were locked from the inside. Well, all but one. The back door into the garage and the same door John Jr. had used to leave the house when police arrived, that door was unlocked. Cook County Sheriff's Officer Hogan was the first one to talk to John Jr. He explained to her that he had been home all night with his parents. He'd gone to bed around 11 and had slept in the basement. He went on to say that he was a hard sleeper, so he didn't hear anything all night, but awoke the next morning to find the upstairs ransacked and his parents dead in their bed. And then he made a couple of statements that struck the officer as unusual. John Jr. told Officer Hogan that he would now have to take over the family business, quote, so 20 people would not lose their jobs. He then went on to ask if the fire department was going to, quote, clean up the mess in the house because he wanted to remain living there and did not want to have to move out. He didn't seem afraid that the attacker would return or bothered at the fact that he was now essentially an orphan. And there was one more thing that the responding officer noticed while speaking to John Jr., and that was that the pants he was wearing were new. In fact, the tags were still attached to them. Officer Hogan couldn't call homicide detectives quick enough, and as she waited for them to arrive, she spoke with the other officers present at the scene, one of them being Palos Heights police officer Christopher Hodorowicz, who had also responded to the scene. Let me stop here real quick and say that there are some real difficult name pronunciations coming right up. I did my best to get it right, however, there's a good chance I'm still going to goof it up. Just know I tried. Anyhow, the Palos Heights police officer told Officer Hogan that at approximately 5.18 that morning, he had pulled John Jr. over in his car near 122nd Street and Harlem Avenue. The officer recalled that it was just a routine traffic stop because John Jr.'s rear license plate was out. Minutes into the investigation and John Jr.'s original story already wasn't adding up. And what started as just a routine traffic stop destroyed the only surviving witness of a double homicide's original alibi. By this point, homicide detectives had made it on scene and Officer Hodorowicz recalled the stop to Detective Moody in detail. 
He told the detective that when he asked John Jr. for his license and insurance, he had mumbled that he was coming from a friend's house in Bridgeview. When John opened his glove box to get his information out, Officer Hodorowicz saw a water bottle filled with a yellowish liquid. Of course, he asked John about it because why wouldn't you ask? I'm not sure where your brain goes, but I know where mine does. Anyhow, the officer must have been curious too, so he asked. John Jr. told him that the yellow liquid was chlorine for his pool. Seems a little odd to be carrying around pool chemicals in a water bottle in your glove box, but hey, stranger things have happened. However, hours later, when the officer responded to the granite home in reference to a double homicide and noticed that there was no pool to put the pool chemicals in, it seemed pretty damn suspicious. It was also suspicious considering the fact that up to this point, John Jr. had told officers that he had gone to bed at 11 and been home all night. Detective Moody also noted that John Jr. was wearing those brand new dark jeans, you know, the ones with the size tag still hanging off, with a sleeveless shirt and a sleeveless vest, the same outfit he was wearing when he had been pulled over earlier that morning. And the sleeveless vest just didn't seem like something you would typically wear to church, which of course is where John Jr. said he was headed when he went to wake up his parents that morning. Detective Moody asked Officer Hogan to take John Jr. to the police station for a formal interview. Meanwhile, he went and listened to that 911 call and also found John Jr.'s demeanor strange. After listening to the call, Detective Moody arrived at the station to sit down and talk to John Jr. When he arrived, he found him sitting in the lunchroom, watching TV as if nothing had happened. The detective decided it would be best to question the 17-year-old in an interview room and as procedure patted him down before going into the room. Detective Moody recovered $5,163, including 50 $100 bills in his wallet. I mean, that's not weird, right? Detective Moody read John Jr. his rights, but did not place him in cuffs as they talked. At first, he told the same story he had told all along, the one about him sleeping in the basement, being a heavy sleeper, and waking up to find his parents brutally murdered. But the longer they talked, the more John Jr.'s story changed. According to the patch, John Jr.'s story changed about 14 times. Yes, you heard me right, 14 times, each story more ridiculous than the last. I'm not going to bore you with all 14 of them because I'm sure you got better things to do. But one of the tall tales was that his dad was actually a feared drug dealer who was killed by another rival drug dealer named Momo. Another story was that his parents had been murdered by Mexican drywallers who had worked for his father. He tried to blame anyone and everyone he could possibly think of. And when confronted about the fact that he had not been in bed all night, and had been pulled over for that taillight, he said he had fallen asleep in his white Chevy blazer in the driveway of the house, and that the bottle of yellow liquid found in the glove box was chlorine, but it wasn't for a pool. It was for a fish pond that belonged to his friend who, quote, lives by the mosque in Bridgeview. And as crazy as that sounds, what detectives didn't know at that moment was that they were getting a little closer to the truth maybe tap dancing around the outskirts of it, but closer than the drug dealer named Momo 
or the Mexican drywallers or any of the other outrageous stories. You know how people say there's a grain of truth in every good lie? Well, John Jr. was leaving small, very small, almost microscopic grains of truth in each story. The final story he kind of landed on went something like this. John Jr. admitted that he, not his father, was the one dealing drugs to the students at Stagg High School. That that Saturday evening before the murders, he went over to his friend, 17-year-old Chris Wyma's house, the same friend who lived by the mosque and had a fish pond, apparently. He claimed he had gone over to Wyma's house because he overheard a dealer named Sam, who owed him money for an ounce of weed, talking about going to his parents' house to rob and kill them, while he was in a smoke shop on Harlem Avenue. There were two other drug dealers involved named Momo and another one named G. So he had gone over to Wyma's to smoke weed on the front porch with Chris Wyma and some other friends to avoid his impending death. He crashed on the couch on the front porch and at around 5 a.m. Wyma had woken him up because Wyma's father, who just so happened to be a Palos Hills police officer, would be arriving home from his shift. He then went home and you know the rest. Detectives were tired of the ever-shifting story, so they decided John Jr. needed a little alone time to think. They left the interview room, and after some time passed, John Jr. knocked on the door. He asked the detective, do you want to hear the truth? It was then that he told the most insane story yet, that his father, John Sr., a well-respected member of the community, hard worker, and very religious man was actually the drug dealer he referred to in his previous story as G. He continued on saying that his father told him that evening that he needed to get out of the house because Momo was coming to rob him. He said, and I quote, He made me do this shit. He had cash at the house. He went on to tell investigators that his father grew marijuana on a sheep farm in Lamont but he couldn't show the cops where it was because at this point it had been harvested. He went on to say, My dad and I had the closest relationship ever. He didn't want me to die. He wanted me to take over the business. He told detectives that he didn't want to engage in illegal activities like growing weed on a sheep farm, but his father made him do it. John Jr. stated, My father liked me, but I was his little bitch. This probably goes without saying, but there has never been a shred of evidence found that John Sr. was involved in any illegal activities. And maybe the most truthful statement John Jr. made that day was that he was in fact a little bitch. Well, that and the fact that he put himself with 17-year-old Christopher Wyma and his little group of friends, to include 19-year-old Ehab Qasim, and at some point in the interview, another 16-year-old, Mohammed Selaha. John Jr. was taken into custody and later charged with first-degree murder. Detectives, of course, needed to speak to the three friends he claimed he was with that night, and when they did, they all initially denied that they were with John Jr., Two days after the murders on September 13, 2011, the San Diego Union-Tribune reported on John Granite Jr.'s arrest. His at-the-time defense attorney spoke to the outlet and denied that John Jr. had anything to do with the brutal murder of his parents, stating there's no way that young man could have done that to two human beings. 
He went on to say that there was no possibility of a plea deal, and he intended to prove that his client was innocent. John Jr.'s defense attorney was right about one thing. It didn't seem as if John Jr. alone could have overpowered and beaten his parents. And as investigators gathered more evidence like cell phone and computer records, they learned that John Granite had not been alone that night. Cell phone records proved that from 2 a.m. until 3.30 a.m. on September 11th, John Jr., Ehab Kassam, and Christopher Wyma's cell phones placed them all in the area of the Granite's home. And at 4 a.m., the cell phones were all together in the area of Christopher Wyma's house. On October 9, 2011, Wyma and Kassam were both brought in for another interview. When confronted with the cell phone evidence, Wyma initially said that he and Kassam went on a blunt run before stopping by the Granite's home. He said John Jr. then told him that he had killed his parents and asked him and Kassam to go see if they were dead. So being the friends that they were, they went to go check. Wyma then asked for a piece of paper and began to draw a picture of what he saw inside the master bedroom. Christopher Wyma drew an accurate depiction of the crime scene, adding details that were not known to the general public. At that point, detectives knew without a shadow of a doubt that Wyma was involved in the murders. He was read his Miranda rights and the interview continued. Wyma changed his story and told investigators that John Jr. had planned the murder of his parents, and he and Cossum had helped carry it out. After John Jr., for whatever reason, didn't go through with his original plan. According to Wyma, the original plan was for John Jr. to poison his parents with chlorine. Yep, the chlorine the officer had seen in the car the night of the murders. As it turned out, a month prior, John Jr. had told Wyma that he wanted his parents dead. And so, Wyma gave him some chlorine from his shed that John Jr. planned to use to poison his parents' coffee. When that plan failed, John hatched up another. He told his friends he would pay them thousands of dollars to kill his parents. Christopher Wyma and Ehab Kassam were interviewed separately on October 9th. But the story they both told in the interview room and the one that Kossum later told on the stand matched up and further lined up perfectly with evidence at the scene. According to Kossum, the plan was set into motion on September 10, 2011, when Wyman, Kossum, and that third friend, Muhammad Salaha, were all at Wyma's house. John Granite Jr. showed up at some point in the afternoon. He was frustrated and talking fast as he told them he wanted his parents killed that very day. According to Wyma, John Jr. told them how much he hated his parents and that he needed them dead. He told Wyma that he would call him later that evening via Skype. He'd use the word concert as code to indicate that his parents had fallen asleep and at the time Wyma and Kossum were to come to the house to carry out the murder. The reason the word concert was chosen as a cover was due to the fact that John Jr. was planning on attending a concert in the not-so-distant future. So, if anyone were to somehow see their messages, they would think they were talking about the upcoming concert. John Jr. left, and so did Cossum. Cossum went to Menards to buy gloves and then returned back to Wyma's. When he got back, he, Cossum, and Selaha looked around the house for a murder weapon. 
According to Cossum, Wyma looked under the porch and saw two metal baseball bats and a machete. He stated, I guess we'll use these, as he grabbed them. Mohammed Selaha agreed to be the driver, and Christopher Wyma and Ehab Cossum decided they would be the ones to actually carry out the murders. They kept in contact with John Granite Jr. via text message throughout the night. According to court documents, at around 1.46 a.m. on September 11, 2011, that Skype call came. John Jr. used the code word CONCERT, and Wyma and Cossum knew it was time to go through with the plan. The trio headed over to the Granite home, baseballs in hand, and as planned, Selaha drove. According to Cossum, the mood on the way was, quote, a bunch of idiots ready to go kill two people and think nothing of it. They had to make a quick stop to switch out Cossum's car for his father's van as not to be recognized. After the swap, Selaha drove them over to the Granite House. They made it to John and Maria's home, and John Jr. signaled to them from a bush he was hiding in while wearing a headlamp. The Granite's only son led the two killers in through the back door of the garage. They took off their shoes, and Cossum noticed about nine stacks of money there in the garage. Cossum and Wyma began to walk up the stairs toward John and Maria's bedroom. But on the way, the metal bats made a loud clinking sound. This freaked them out, so they headed back downstairs, and John Jr. told them to get back upstairs. According to Cossum, again they headed back up the stairs, but just outside the door, he tried to turn back. He told Wyma he couldn't go through with it. Wyma responded by slapping Cossum on the back and stating, Fuck that. You ready to live like a king? Wyma opened the door and they each headed to one side of the bed. According to Cossum, Wyma was on the left where John Sr. was sleeping, and he was on the right side next to Maria. They began beating the couple in the head with the bats as they slept. John Sr. and Maria both cried out, but they kept going. John Sr. fought back and at one point made it out of the bed and onto his feet. He chased after Wyma. At that point, Cossum then left Maria and struck John hard in the ribs, and then on both sides of the head with the bat. He fell to the ground and stopped moving. With John Sr. now deceased, the pair turned their attention back to Maria, who was gravely wounded but still breathing. Wyma put a pillow over her face and struck her several more times with the bat, but Maria was still alive so they ran downstairs to John Jr., who was counting money in the garage. They told him that his mother was still alive, and according to Cossum, he replied, Go take care of it, as he handed him a knife. Cossum and Wyma went back upstairs, and Cossum stabbed Maria multiple times in the stomach until her breathing stopped. Cossum searched for a safe in the attic that John Jr. had told him about, but was unable to find it. Wyma grabbed a box of jewelry and a bag of coins before heading out to Selaha, who was waiting in the car. The trio drove back to Wyma's house and waited for John Jr., who arrived approximately 20 minutes later with stacks of money in hand. He gave Selaha $4,000 for driving. He handed $8,000 apiece to Kossum and Wyman. John Granite Jr. then handed another $5,000 to Chris Wyma for killing his mother. Let that sink in. 
he gave Wyma a bonus for murdering the woman who brought him into this world. After the money was divvied up, according to Wyma, they wiped the baseball bats off with Clorox wipes, burned the wipes, and the gloves they wore in a bonfire. Initially, the bats were stashed under the porch, but sometime later, Muhammad Salah tossed them into a forest. John Jr. took the knife and disposed of it in a field across from his house. Back at the scene, the trio rehearsed the story they would tell if police ever questioned them about the murders. The story was this, that Wyma, Kasim, and John Jr. had all gone to dinner together on the night of September 11th. After dinner, they then went to Wyma's house, delivered marijuana to someone at 55th in Harlem, and played video games for the rest of the night. It's unclear why initially nobody but Cossum stuck by this tale, but that's not the only thing that doesn't make sense in this story. Anyhow, after practicing their cover story, John Jr. headed back home. He was stopped by that officer for the taillight, but made it home where he waited a few hours before calling 911 to report that his parents had been murdered while he slept. And that was the story. After the interviews, 17-year-old Christopher Wyma, 19-year-old Ehab Qasim, and 16-year-old Mohammed Salaha were all charged with first-degree murder, home invasion, and armed robbery. In the original indictments, there were 75 counts in total for each, to include John Granite Jr. After their arrest, according to the Associated Press, Qasim, Salaha, and Wyma led investigators to where they hid the two baseball bats and a knife. Bloody clothing was also recovered and about $21,000 of the $35,000 taken from the granite home. The evidence was stacking up. However, getting the case to trial would take some time, though. And in the process, two private attorneys representing Christopher Wyma and John Granite Jr. quit, citing financial reasons. Public defenders were assigned. But there was delay after delay. Sometimes it was the defense and sometimes it was the prosecution. Five years passed before the first of the four defendants was held accountable in court. Mohammed Salaha, the getaway driver, was the first to get a deal in March of 2016. He pled guilty to one count of first-degree murder. He was later sentenced to 35 years in the Illinois Department of Corrections. He will be eligible for parole in 2046, according to the Illinois DOC. According to court documents, Ehab Qasim turned state's witness, agreeing to testify truthfully against John Granite Jr. and Christopher Wyma and plead guilty to first-degree murder in exchange for a 40-year prison sentence. Several more months ticked by, and in May of 2016, there was a status hearing for John Granite Jr. and Christopher Wyma. The prosecution revealed that they needed more time to go over discovery. At this point, Judge Neil Lynham was getting frustrated with the delays. He stated at the hearing, We need to get to this trial. It's been five years. This has to be some kind of a record. How much more discovery can there be? I want these matters disposed of. In January of 2017, the trial for John Granite Jr. and Christopher Wyma finally began. It was decided that they would be tried together, but with separate juries. Judge Lynham presided over it all, making sure that each of the defendants' juries only heard the evidence that was admissible for each of the defendants. It was a delicate balancing act, but a necessary one, 
and much of the evidence was actually admissible for both. The prosecution painted a disturbing picture of a greedy son who was enraged after his parents destroyed some marijuana plants they found growing at their home a few weeks before the murder. He had told nearly every friend that would listen that he wanted his parents dead. The plan had been set into motion long before the conversation on September 10th. And according to the prosecution, John Jr. groomed his friends, showering them with gifts and money, flashing his parents' wealth in front of them. He made promises of jobs and paid them to do chores for his father's business. After his parents discovered his weed, he decided it was time to kill them. John Jr. was the mastermind that set it all in motion. And if he was the mastermind, Christopher Wyma was second in command. The son of a police officer, his knowledge would come in handy. He recruited the others and chose the weapons. Why? Well, he just wanted the money. According to Cook County Prosecutor Donna Norton, the two fed off each other. And Wyma's greed was evident in his interrogation by his own words. When detectives told him that his co-conspirator, Ehab Kossum, ended up with a bigger cut of the money stole from the granite home, Wyma responded by shouting, How much more? How much more? The prosecution backed this theory up through cell phone records, the defendant's own testimony, and the medical examiner, who described just how brutal the murders had been. Friends of John Jr. and Christopher Wyma testified. Many told of John Jr.'s hatred of his parents and the events surrounding the murders, but none were as powerful as Wyma's at-the-time girlfriend Stephanie and, of course, Ehab Kossum. Wyma's girlfriend Stephanie testified that she had been there on the night of September 10th and watched from a distance as the boys planned a murder. At one point, she overheard one of them say, It is happening tonight. This is on. The day after the murders, on September 12th, Stephanie testified that Wyma was acting strange. She asked him what was wrong and he explained that he was in a bad situation with Granite. And while the pair were hanging out, Stephanie found $15,000 in a guitar bag in Wyma's bedroom. She asked her boyfriend why he had $15,000 just lying around and he told her that he got the money for helping Granite. And as it turned out, Wyma had all but confessed at one point. He blurted out, I can't get their screams out of my head. And further, Stephanie testified that Wyma gave her a shirt with blood on it and asked her to burn it. She didn't and eventually turned the shirt over to police. Forensic testing revealed that the blood belonged to John Granite Sr. The prosecution ended with their most powerful witness, Ehab Kossum who detailed every aspect of the murders from start to finish, of course implicating both John Jr. and Christopher Wyma. His testimony was compelling, and as he spoke, he seemed remorseful for his actions that night. He appeared to be truthful and made no attempt to mitigate his involvement, admitting on the stand that he had beaten and stabbed Maria and attacked John Sr. when he got away from Wyma. He made it clear that the murders had taken place at the direction of John Jr. and that while they were occurring, he was in the garage calling the shots and counting up the money. And with that, it was time for the defense. 
Defense attorney for John Granite, LaFonso Palmer, placed the blame squarely on the other boys, stating John didn't plan to kill anyone. He didn't choose the weapons or tell anyone what to say to police. He went on to say that his client was stupid and hanging out with bad kids. He said he was a dumb kid trying to buy friends and be a tough guy. He hung out at Chris's house getting high doing blunt runs because his father, who was a cop, and his mother don't care. He also threw shade at Cossum's testimony and the Cook County State Attorney, claiming that Cossum's testimony was not to be trusted because it had been bought with that plea deal. And the real killers were Christopher Wyma and Ehab Cossum. But really, what else did he have? When it came time for Wyma's defense, they claimed that he had displayed, quote, poor judgment by helping destroy evidence. But the actual murder? Yeah, he had no part in that. He had only helped after the fact. Cook County Assistant State's Attorney Deborah Lawler brought it all back during close, as she described how John Granite Jr., quote, kept his little paws clean, counting money, as his two friends, Wyma and Cossum, crept up the stairs of his parents' home and beat them both to death with aluminum baseball bats. She went on to say, John and Maria could not possibly know or conceive what their only child, their baby boy, had planned. What the defendant did to his own parents is unimaginable. It takes our breath away with its sheer callousness. And all for what? For Wyma, it was all about the money. And for John Jr., hatred and greed. He counted out his father's money as he was murdered. And not just murdered, but savagely beaten alongside the love of his life and the house he built for his son with his own two hands. John Jr. had parents that loved him and only wanted what was best. They provided a nice life that they worked so hard for from the moment he was brought into the world. And this is how he chose to repay them. It didn't take long for the juries to come back with their verdicts. For Christopher Wyma, it took 40 minutes for the jury to find him guilty of first-degree murder. He was later sentenced to two life sentences to run concurrently. John Granite Jr. was also found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to his natural life behind bars. Pending any appeals, which they both filed for but were denied, Wyma and Granite Jr. will die in prison. Ehab Kossum was formally sentenced to 40 years in prison and took full responsibility for his actions at sentencing. He will be in his 60s when his sentence is complete, a sentence he has to serve 100% of per the agreement. John and Maria Granite are remembered as kind, devoted, and loving parents who always provided for John Jr. They were loved by their families, but also by anyone they came into contact with. Their online memorial wall is filled with stories of their kindness and the fact that they were genuine, good-hearted, honest people in their business dealings, but also just in life. The fact that even after ordering his parents' murder, John Jr. was more than willing to spend their hard-earned cash and attempted to destroy his father's reputation makes this somehow all the more tragic. John Granite Sr. was proud of the life he had built for his family, as well he should have been. It was built on hard work and honesty, and that's rare these days. 
John Sr. and Maria could have never imagined that the evil monster that would destroy it all was their only son. But the truth is, it can't all be destroyed. John and Maria's memories live on in the hearts of those that knew and loved them, and they will forever be remembered for their kind, generous, and honest hearts. For more information about this case, head over to my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast. I'll be bringing you an all new episode next Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already so you don't miss it. You can finally get all your episodes ad free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Go on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.